1: Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. Uh, after last week's, uh, I was going to say episode, some people have called it a cry for help. Uh, <laughs> when we only had two emails. I'm glad to say uh, we've had so many emails come in. We'll get to them later. Um, but uh, of course, I asked for people's favourite player. I've had so many that I'm going to have to actually have to cut the podcast into two. So there's going to be another episode later this week. Otherwise, it would literally go on for probably two, two and a half hours, and uh, that's a lot of talking, and a lot of listening. So there will be two episodes this week, for this week only. Uh, Monday and Thursday, and uh, all the emails we read out. So if you don't hear your, yours in this edition, it will be in the one later in the week. We've had a lot of emails. I appreciate them all. We're back in business, that's what we're saying, and uh, we'll come to that shortly. But of course, uh, just finished on Sunday night the World Mixed Doubles in Milton Keynes. Uh, it was uh, the first staging of this event for many years. Thoroughly enjoyable, actually. Um, had a really nice feeling about the place. I think whenever you have a different format, a different, I mean, snooker doesn't change, but in terms of the format, it does. Uh, it does kind of bring out the positivity, and I think we certainly saw that around the venue, and hopefully that translated to people watching on television around the world. Uh, congratulations to Neil Robertson and Mink Nutcher. I mean, start of play Sunday. Nobody thought they were going to win it. I'm not sure even they did. Um, they didn't, it wasn't only that they were bottom of the table with just two frames, one on day one. They didn't really look like they were enjoying it. There was no chemistry between them, really. Uh, whereas with the other three parents, you saw, you know, good chemistry. Certainly, Ronnie and Rianne were chatting away. Selby and Kenner, you know, were sharing smiles and really encouraging one another. And indeed, Trump and Ong Yi. But, uh, Robertson and Mink, there is a, an obvious sort of language barrier there. But there was very little interaction. But everything changed. On the Sunday afternoon, they beat Trump and on Ye. I think the catalyst was definitely Mink's 74 clearance. That was a terrific break. We saw Robertson really appreciate it and started to think, actually, you know what? We could actually do this. They really needed to win that match 4-0 to stand a realistic chance. Still needed Selby and Kenner to beat O'Sullivan and Evans. That happened. The stars aligned for them and of course they won the final 4-2. They won £30,000 each. Great story, great victory for them, but really, the purpose of this event was to show a different side of snooker, a different image of the game. Certainly, to foreground the female players, women's snooker. I think it achieved all of that. Uh, obviously, not every frame was, you know, lightning fast stuff. It was never going to be doubles. Has never been that. Um, I was talking to Nick Metcalf. I'm talking snooker. He, he was here, and I was saying that people have a sort of rose-tinted view of the old Hoffmeister World doubles. They remember the tournament and the era that it was played in, but maybe not so much the snooker. And doubles has always been stop-start. Um, and that's why that tournament went away. It didn't get anywhere near the viewing figures of the other big ITV events at the time. For me, I think, I hope this event is here to stay, but I think two days is enough. I don't see any logic in expanding it to be a week-long event. I think two days is enough. I think it's good to have it as a curtain raiser before the British Open the crowds weren't great weren't terrible they were about what you expected Milton Keynes really it's not um, most ideally sort of placed venue I don't think um, but it was perfectly fine for, for the first uh, event and hopefully people enjoyed it and hopefully you know it got people talking there was certainly quite a lot of press around the event and uh, I, I mean Ronnie O'Sullivan I saw very briefly after he after uh, he was knocked out with Ryan Evans he, he seemed in a pretty chipper mood he tried his best he seemed to enjoy partnering Ryan it was again it was a, a, a different challenge for him. We have actually had an email hot off the press from Jonathan Ford uh, as the, the last ball kind of went in. He says, uh, just to say, I really enjoyed the World Mixed Doubles event that's just finished. It was fresh, innovative and an intriguing format that proved its worth with the team in last place before Sunday coming through to qualify for the final, albeit with a little help from O'Sullivan and Evans, failing to secure the frame they needed. I felt the comments on the women on occasions were maybe a little patronising, but nonetheless a really enjoyable two days. I know it all comes to money, but the team dynamic of the event would, I suggest, prompt louder calls for another World Team Cup or a continental team event, i.e. Europe v. Asia, Great Britain v. China, but time will tell. Thanks, for always, as always, for a stimulating and fascinating listen. Thank you very much, Jonathan Ford, for that. Um... Yeah, the team sort of thing. I mean, it's interesting this Labour Cup where, I mean, Roger Federer retired, which is why that event got so much um, publicity. But actually, it has become a big thing that, in tennis. Um, and obviously, you know, we've got the Ryder Cup, the President's Cup in golf, the Moscone Cup in pool. It does seem that there is an opportunity in Stuka for some sort of team event. Obviously, you know, the old world doubles as well. But as I say, I'm not sure. I'm not sure a week of doubles is really what we want. Maybe a sort of three-day team event would work. It all comes down to the commercial side. Is there a broadcaster? Is there a sponsor? Is there interest for it? And, um, you know, I'm sure you know, the uh, World Snooker Tour are not, uh, are not immune to the fact that um, that uh, this, is, uh, this is something that is possible, but, you know, it's not just as simple as clicking your fingers, clearly. Anyway, of course, the, uh, the World Mixed Doubles gives way to the British Open, the arena being re-rigged overnight. And uh, the first thing to say about the British Open is uh, a big thank you to World Snooker Tour for deciding to name the trophy, the Clive Everton Trophy, in honour of Clive, who, of course, is just retired after, well, nearly six decades of snooker journalism, 51 of them as editor of Snooker Scene. Uh, of course, in the 1980s, he was uh, reporting the old British Open. He commentated on... On the, when it was on Sky as well, and uh, listen, just a great gesture and really delighted that uh, that they've taken that decision, uh, I understand it was one of the easiest decisions they ever took in the board meeting, it took about 30 seconds to discuss it, they all agreed it was a fitting honour for Clive, who I can tell you as well is, uh, is very uh, touched by it and uh, it's uh, just a good thing I think, I, I, I can't see how anyone could disagree with that and uh, he won't be there to present the trophy but um, it will be Nice to honour him in that way, and of course that will carry forward as the event continues. So the British Open this week, but as I say, last week uh, we had two emails. This week, thanks to my you know sort of <laughs> rather self-pitying uh, podcast, we had a lot more. I asked for people's favourite players, and uh, we've had, as I say, so many that we're going to break the podcast into two. So there's one episode now, and another one coming on Thursday. And that means actually there's still time. To uh, to get your entries in SnookerScenePodcast at mail.com SnookerScenePodcast at mail.com But now, let's get stuck into the emails Okay, so I'm going to read these out In the order they came in There's no pecking order uh, It's just the order they were they were sent in We start with Ian Mackey He says, my favourite player is Neil Robertson And, and Ian has put uh, Neil's name in capital letters So that tells us he really does like him He says I just love the way he's played the game over the years Neil's game is evolved has evolved from a player who could just pop anything off the lampshades to now being that complete player with the best cue action around, which I do think will mean if he wants to play for many more years to come at the top level, that Q action will stand him in very good stead for doing so. But also that all-round game which you need to reach the very top together with the wonderful temperament that's now that's now a vital part of snooker if you want to reach the pinnacle of the sport. But my admiration for how Neil got to the top of the game is also a big factor in my choice. All the sacrifices of leaving his family behind in Australia, then falling off the tour, then giving snooker another chance with very little money to his name, really does tell a story of an amazingly strong character who, even when becoming a top player, was told by one of the very best of all time, Stephen Hendry, your break building is amateurish. Most players would have told Stephen where to go, but not Neil. He took his advice on board, And the very next season became the first player to break 100 centuries in a season and still holds that record of 103 centuries to this day, together with the way he conducts himself on and off table. Snooker's very lucky to have such a roundy person like Neil at the top of the game. I would dearly love to see Neil win the Northern Ireland Open coming up very shortly. That would complete the Home Nation set and he would become the very first player to win the complete set of all four Home Nations events. Good point, that actually, Ian. The Grand Slam of Home Nation's. And uh, he adds here, he says, I really enjoyed the podcast. I hope you continue to make many more, especially after hearing the news that Talking Balls podcast have now come to an end, which is sad to hear. The more snooker podcasts, the better. Well, indeed, I agree with that. And of course, Talking Balls, they actually had uh, Neil Robertson on uh, last year and made some headlines with some of the things he said about the Crucible. So um, they've, uh, I think, I believe they've, just because of the time it takes to, to put them together, they've decided to, to knock it on the head for now. But anyway, hopefully, uh, hopefully they'll be back in some form at some point. Gary Park is our next emailer. He said, you asked for listeners favourite players. One of mine is Sean Murphy, because I credit him with getting me back into the game after my interest had lulled in the early 2000s. On the first Monday of the 2005 World Championship, I went into work at the school I was teaching at and felt under the weather. The nurse spotted that I had one tiny blister on my shoulder and declared, that's chicken pox, go home, see you in two weeks' time. She was spot on, if you'll excuse the pun. And so I was home by 10am in time to watch the morning session on BBC. Of course, Sean dominated that tournament with the most beautiful cue action and some outstanding break-building. Laid up with the illness, I was able, for once, to watch pretty much the whole 17 days. And because my interest in snooker had become fairly casual, Sean was a new name to me, and therefore to come from nowhere to build up an unstoppable momentum and go on to win the championship in style. I therefore will always associate him with a kind of Green Bay's, Green Bay's based nirvana, and regard him as being responsible for my much more extensive engagement. With the game since that day and he has uh, written on another matter he says uh, I if to have a review on the ticket pricing for the World Mixed Doubles there's a big discrepancy between the £30 per session charge for that event and the £10 for two sessions I'll be paying to watch the British Open at the same venue two days later I bought the latter weeks ago and I've been receiving regular emails from WST telling me that tickets are selling fast for the doubles so every time I look there are still tickets available so they can't be exactly flying off the shelves. I really hope they've not overpriced this important showcase event, which could potentially really develop the game, especially for female players. It would be such a pity and such a bad optick if the competition appeared throughout the weekend on ITV1 in front of a half-empty arena. It could even set the women's game back by inadvertently giving the impression that snooker fans are not interested and this is some kind of token gesture. I hope I'm wrong about this. I think ticket pricing is, um, is difficult. The, the one thing about Milton Keynes is the venue here, it's not in a city centre. You're not going to walk past it and think, "Oh, the snookers on." I might pop in. Like, like you can do actually with some venues. Here, you kind of have to know it's on. You have to come here, and it's not just thirty pounds because, of course, you know you've got to pay petrol or train fare, whatever. You're going to feed yourself. It soon, adds up. And as we know at the moment, uh, you know people are struggling a little bit for for money, and and it's not a great economic climate. So that uh, these are things we'll have to factor in. But you're right; there is a discrepancy between the, the two events. Isn't there? There's no two ways about that. Move on to Paul now, who says, I love the podcast, keeping my mundane drive to work slightly less mundane. Keep up the good work. Thank you, Paul. He says, my favourite player to watch was Tony Drago. The black shirt when the vast majority went for the traditional white. The speed, quickest competitive century to date, I believe. Also, his weaknesses were endearing. Heated temper and how animated he could be. A missed black out of nowhere and his lack of ability with the rest. All in all, my favourite player to watch. Exciting, slightly exotic, and on his day a genius. Yeah, I mean, that's a great description of Tony Drago. Exciting, slightly exotic, and on his day, a genius. Fantastic talent. One of the biggest gaps between his best snooker and his worst. Um, one of the fastest ever frames, three minutes. In fact, it was his birthday last week. He's 57. I hope Tony's well. I know he was unwell on at one point, but uh, from what we've seen him mean, him more recently, he's looking better. And the, he, he's one of those players, OK, there were, there were better players who, uh, who achieved more. But if Tony Drago was playing, you would be watching that's, he's one of those players you would turn on because you knew you could see something incredible and you knew that you would see someone who wore their heart on their sleeve. And Tony, one of the great characters, I know he watches a lot of Snooker still, watches it all actually, and uh, I, hope he's, I hope he's doing well. Uh, ben Smith, he says, thank you for the podcast, I've listened since the start, I've enjoyed each edition. <laughs> You've obviously got high standards, Ben. Uh, he says... Uh, you continue to be so creative in your d- ideas for the show. Well, thank you. He said, your question, who's your favourite player, brought to mind something which I'm going to attribute to Pink Floyd's David Gilmore, first mention for him on the podcast, although I cannot find corroborating evidence, so it may have been another high-profile guitarist in a magazine article when they're asked for their favourite players. His answer was that every guitarist is a fan of every other guitarist. To me, I imagine, that you can get enjoyment from a technique very different to one's own. The comedian Brandon Burns makes a similar point that a comedian who is stylistically much different to him still has more in common with him than a non-comedian. My labour point is that I watch snooker as entertainment. I watch games enjoying all the players' different ways of addressing the challenge of getting to circa 70 points first. I am, to some degree, a fan of snooker more than one player. I don't think a football fan could say I'm a fan of the Premier League in such a way. Allegiance to a team... Is much more a part of that sport's fabric, I believe. Snooker too has the oft-mentioned peculiarity that, in that the greatest ever player, don't even need to write his name, such as the omnipresence of that epithet, is often supported over an underdog, even by casual supporters. Would this be the case if the commonly chosen adjectives, mercurial, complex, frustrating, were taken away from analysis of his character, and only those which apply to his play were used? Genius, creative, attacking. I think so. The style of play itself is intoxicating even taking the human out of the equation. We know that two donkeys make a good race. Is that a hernism? Competition is one of the fascinations of the game. A competitive match is hugely entertaining, regardless of all the players involved. Style, problem solving, including decision-making, focus, these are all shared by all players, and that challenge is what makes the sport for me. Push comes to shove, though. It's Matthew Stevens. (laughs) So there we are. That's how to write an email. You know, the big reveal came at the end there. He was going to be saving it up. We got to it in the end. Matthew Stevens. is Ben's favourite player. Um, Richard Bassey. Might be Barzy. anyway. He says, this was an easy answer for me. It will always be Steve Davis, OBE. When I first wanted to play, it was playing the best person to learn from was Steve. This would be 1979-80. I got a book of his on how to play and studied every article about his technique at the time, how his father held an iron bar above Steve's head to deter any movement on the shot, etc., etc., to completely copy his form. Steve's dedication to practice, the repetitive drills, the hard graft that nobody else sees, drove me to do the same. The rest is history. I achieved absolutely nothing in the professional game but have enjoyed hours of unique pleasure from the challenge the game poses on a service area you could host a cricket match on. All of these experiences, the high of winning pressure matches in hostile working men's clubs as the away team, of making 15 red total clearances, of feeling the sensation of timing a ball so well that a hair of a tremor travels up the bone of my queuing forearm. The people I've met, the friends, the doors that have opened, has all been down to the inspiration of this one man. As I continued to follow Steve through the 80s, I admired the way he carried himself at all times, with such humility and sheer professionalism to the point where the biggest gripe his critics could poke at him during this time was his response to David Vine in the immediate aftermath of that 1985 final. And to that end, I find it hard to believe the normally dry-witted British public failed to catch Steve's joke when he replied deadpan to Vine, yes, it's just happened in black and white, but rather chose to focus on the curtness of the reply. Yes, that was the height of controversy Steve courted in that golden period. I don't remember him ever complaining about anything either. You may say he didn't have much to complain about as he won everything, but there were occasions which arguably he could have had cause, such as the borderline ferocity of Alex Higgins' supporters during a 5-4 Masters defeat, the booing on a number of other occasions for nothing more than him being better than the rest. In my view, he went on to become and still remains snooker's greatest thinker and ambassador. As a thinker, and in articulating deep snooker analysis, I can only name Clive Everton, MBE, as a contemporary, as an ambassador... Steve stands alone. Yes, they quickly labelled him boring, but Barry and Steve quickly turned that on its head by embracing it and the spitting image puppet that came with it. And if boring means bringing to the game and a large section of the following that he brought, there should always be a place for it. There's a whole book we of a certain age could write about Steve Davis and our relationship with him. I still have the first two autobiographies he published, Snooker Champion and Frame and Fortune. I bought them with my pocket money back in about 81, 82, and also still have... Steve Davis, Riley Snooker Q, born in 1985, with winnings from a bet I'd placed on Steve when in the eighty-four UK final. Steve will always be my favourite, simply for the length of time I've lived alongside his life, and all I personally feel I owe him for the enrichment I've had from his inspiration. Now, what about that? You see these emails, you know, they're not just the people haven't just thrown them together, they've thought hard about them, and you can hear from Richard there very clearly. I think articulating something, a lot of British men who, snooker players around snooker, sort of north of 40, so sort of 40 40 to sort of mid-50s maybe, um, certainly players, you look at a player like Michael Holt or or John Higgins, they, they sort of fit that age category. They were always Steve Davis fans. You know, they obviously liked Jimmy White and Alex Higgins, but they were Davis fans. Ronnie O'Sullivan in '85 was a Davis fan, (laughs) you know, because they could see there was something special about him. And, I mean, he's done well so much for snooker. And and as I've said many times before, he brought a particular audience to the game. Alex Higgins brought the sort of the working class audience. Steve Davis brought the middle class audience. And together, you know, they they made a, a formidable audience for snooker. Now then, Rory Forrest... See, after the last podcast, I've been stirred into life to finally send an email, having been an avid listener from the start. You see, I, I knew I'd smoke people out. <laughs> he said, I'd like to start with my favourite player, without doubt, that is Stephen Hendry. So we've gone here from Davis to Hendry, but as I say, I'm reading these out in the order they've come in. I haven't planned anything. <laughs> he said, anyway, he says, in the late 80s, I was, a, I was a pre-teen, just getting into snooker and pool, being able to play both at my local youth club twice a week. Very quickly, my interest in the game became all-consuming, and like Hendry, i got a six-foot table for my birthday. Sadly, this is where our timelines separate, but I did play whenever possible and, of course, avidly consumed any of the limited, by today's standards, broadcasting of snooker on telly. To this day, I still watch hours and hours of 80s, 90s snooker on YouTube, which has been an enormous source of pleasure. When Hendry came on the scene, he completely changed the snooker world. Today, I feel his achievements and performance level are not truly appreciated or at least are too easily dismissed. I hate the term prime, but for sure, when at his best, Henry played to a standard the equal of anyone who has ever played the game. For me, that is not up for debate. What is also forgotten is just how much of a natural talent he was. If you watch his early career, he played quickly and instinctively, and as we all know, was fearless, and is perhaps the best ever player under pressure. Finally, he was a Scot. At the time, as a nation, we were not overly endowed with world-class sportsmen and women. All of a sudden, we had someone at the top of the tree, and that brought us an immense sense of pride. And now he carries on here and we'll, we'll read the rest out. He says, I have, I believe, a couple of world-class niche and pedantic points to make. Well, <laughs> if, ever this, if ever there was a podcast for niche and pedantic, pedantic, then this is the one. Number one, referee respotting the colours or not respotting as it goes. To avoid damaging the cloth at the precise position of the colour, it seems all professional referees place the ball on the table next to the small cross, then roll the ball approximately uh, to where they deem the correct pos- position to be. How on earth can they know how far to roll the ball? So that is exactly in the right place. In my opinion, they should return to simply spotting the colours when one is potted. After all, cloths are replaced very frequently and I don't think it would cause any issues. That was the niche. And now to the pedantic. When clearing up, why do most players not attempt to pot the black? (laughs) It is the ball that is on. By not attempting it, surely... By not attempting it, surely this is a foul. No matter if it's inconsequential or not. This has always bugged me. Well... (laughs) I, they, they, I suppose, they'd, yes, I mean, is it a foul? I don't know, I don't think so. Um, it's just uh, kind of accepted that, you know, you, you don't have to. But uh, Cliff Thorburn, famously, when he won in 1980, he took an age after potting the pink to decide not to pot the black. It was a very strange ending to that final against Alex Higgins. Of course, he's better known for a black that he did pot three years later. But anyway, thank you for your comments about Stephen Hendry. And what we're seeing already is the very personal connection that snooker fans have with players we talking there about? Growing up in Scotland and having someone maybe not that much older than him, you know, conquering the world and the inspiration that that can to, can give you. So uh, this is all good stuff. We have now Isaac, and uh, he says, "I'm a 15 year old snooker fan and recreational player from Berkshire, and I've been listening to your podcast for a while now, but never thought to email in. I know you didn't get many emails last week, so I thought I'd take my chance. My dad loves snooker." just as much as me, so the first time I was introduced to Snooker was when my dad sat me down the morning after John Higgins made the 11th 147 in Crucible History. So this would have been, uh, I guess, two years ago. I only watched that frame, and I loved the visual beauty of all the balls disappearing off the table, but wasn't as impressed as I should have been, as I didn't appreciate how difficult it was to compile a 147. Well, here, I'll break in here, Isaac. This uh, this gives you something in common with Donald Sutherland. Donald Sutherland, a very famous Canadian actor... Uh, Don't look now And all that Um, And he uh, I've told this story before But you know We're we're amongst friends Uh, He Being Canadian He turned up to watch Kirk Stevens at the Masters When he played Jimmy White In that semi-final In 1984 And uh, arrived late So the first frame he saw Was Kirk Stevens Making the maximum Everyone's going mad And you know And he's thinking Wow This snooker really (laughs) Is popular They really get involved maybe not appreciating that the, the frame was particularly special but anyway that's, uh, that's Donald Sullivan. Let, let's continue with the email um, Isaac says I remember watching the Karen Wilson interview after beating McGill in that epic semi later on in the tournament and was stunned by how much the game could mean emotionally shortly after this tournament my dad bought me a 6x3 table to play on and after some weeks and months I was able to make half centuries on it I then visited the Lavender Park Golf Club near me to play on the full size tables app. there I loved it so much and now play regularly To answer your question from last week, my favourite snooker player is Sean Murphy. He's incredible to watch when playing well, especially the ridiculous long pots he can produce, and also he's a great character in the sport. I love his podcast. I admire him for overcoming some of the troubles in his earlier life. If I got to choose which snooker player I could be, though, it could be none other than the Wizard of Wish for himself, John Higgins. The temperament, tactics, technique, ability under pressure, especially to pull off his trademark clearance... And most of all, his consist- his, consist- his consistency, I got it out on the fourth attempt there, consistency is to be admired greatly. Thank you very much, Isaac. And I don't know if anyone's keeping score, but that's another vote for Sean Murphy. I'm not going to keep score because you know, it's, not, it's not a popularity contest, but uh, there we have another vote for Sean Murphy. Uh, Christine Clements. She said, I'm not a massive Snooker fan, but I've enjoyed it for years and loved the podcast. I only really watch the big tournaments, but like to keep up to date with what's happening in between. My favourite player, I think, is Mark Selby. I have lots of players I like seeing do well, but Mark would be the one I'd like to see win over everyone else. I'm in my mid-forties, so of course I love Ronnie. I don't think you can be my age and not love Ronnie, as we've been with him through all the ups and downs. I first really remember liking Mark when he lost to Ronnie in some final years ago. My specific snooker memory is woeful, I'm sorry. It was before Vicky was around and I felt so sorry for him as his dad had died and although I think I remember his brother being around he seemed so lonely in contrast to Ronnie who at the time uh, was married and had his little girl to celebrate with lifting her up onto the table at the end. Just on one very pedantic point. I don't think Ronnie's ever been married but uh, he would have been in in a particular relationship at that time. Anyway, Christine continues. Over the years Ronnie has... Been the one who sometimes seemed all alone whilst it's been lovely to see Mark get married and see his little girl. Times have changed for him, but reading the article in the Mirror this week showed me again things are not always what they appear on the surface. Looks to me he has a lovely, he's a lovely decent man. It's wonderful to see the success he's made of his life after such a difficult start. People say he's a boring player, but that grit he shows is what snooker is all about. In contrast to Ronnie again, Mark is always watchable. doesn't hurt that he's also very good looking. Uh, So we we got to the point here, haven't we? Uh, He says, whereas there have been many times over the years, I just can't bear to watch Ronnie implode yet again. Snooker personalities aren't made in a few hours watching a single match. It's the progression of a career, getting to know how they react to pressure and also rooting against the ones who I find annoying that really holds my attention. In most matches, I know who I want to win. That comes from having both players I really like and players I really, really don't like. You can't ask us to write in with the players we can't stand, though. Well, you can do, but I might, I might not read them out. Anyway, uh, sorry if this email is a bit boring. Not at all. Very interesting. And uh, keep up the good work. Uh, the ones where you're just talking to yourself are often the best ones. <laughs> Thank you, Christine. Now, uh, who have we got here? We've got Dan. Dan Angel. She only two emails. I'm a fan of the podcast and I'm happy to contribute. The short answer to your question is my favourite player is Stephen Hendry. The long answer is I used to watch the Stuka with my dad while growing up in the 80s and loved it. Davis was dominating, so was looking for someone to, to challenge that I could support, and then a young Hendry came along. I was allowed to stay up late to watch as a kid, and we saw stuff like doubles with Davis and Mio, Hendry and Hallett, master's battles between Hendry... Parrot and Jimmy. Obviously Hendry retired but I continue to love snooker. Lots of players I admire but probably Mark Selby would be top of the current list. are. another vote for Selby. Uh, what he overcame in terms of background and injuries and his determination to get the most out of his undoubted talent is admirable and a great story for the sport. Looked at one stage like he may never win a world title so to get four is remarkable. People who say he's boring maybe do not understand fully how difficult it is to master all facets of the game. As they say, it's not called potting. Uh, and even though it wasn't your question, the greatest single thing about snooker is the great Ted Lowe. We used to watch games just for his amazing commentary. He was the Peter Alice of our sport. Well, Ted Lowe, uh, thank you, Dan. Ted Lowe, uh, I think, was fourth in my list of uh, the most influential non-players in snooker history. Um, but again, what, what, we're, what we're seeing here is, and, and um, this is something I'll come on to, actually. We're seeing the personalities and life story and background. You know, it is a journey. And and certainly because snooker is a career you can actually have, you can play for a long time. You know, Christine mentioned Ryan O'Sullivan, 30 years now. You you do get to know them. you feel you get to know them and you share their battles and you, you know, you kind of at times share their pain. But this is why I think World Snooker Tour are missing a bit of a trick because there's... There's documentaries now in in lots of other sports. Uh, Formula One have tried to survive. They have all or nothing in in football and cricket and rugby and there's various other behind the scenes documentaries and that would be a great way to get to know some of the snooker players to actually be in their homes, to be in their lives, to to see where they come from, who, who's in their life, what their daily routines are. You know, put a camera in the in the dressing room in the Crucible. What's it like? 15 minutes before you go out to play your first round match. How are you feeling? Uh, what is practice all about? You know, what what is the day? for a snooker player like all, all these sort of things in the background I think give the players a chance to to put themselves forward it'd be great to see something like that on a, on a streaming service or, or on TV even um, so anyway that's, uh, that's an idea that they can have for free another one <laughs> uh, Tom Rennie uh, sympathy coming in here so I was feeling sorry for you when you told us you only received two emails last week I thought I'd better drop your line to let you know that there is someone listening and in fact very much enjoying the show My favourite player is Steve Davis, as he was world champion when I first started playing as a kid. In fact, I bought a two-piece cue with his signature on it and played with it most of my life, upgrading only recently after probably 40 years of use. My favourite current player is Ricky Walden. He always seems to play with an intensity in his eyes, always so keen to play the next shot and seemingly unfazed by previous misses. Always exciting to watch. I hope you don't need to read this out due to the fact you've received hundreds of emails. Well, (laughs) I'm reading them all out, Tom, so thank you very much for your... Uh, your um, contribution. Now we have here Simon Simon Monk. He says, "I do listen to your weekly podcast. It was rather sad to hear you only received a couple of emails last week. I like to think last week it will be go down as, as a low point. Although you know we may lower the bar, may, may lower the bar further. Anyway." Simon continues, I've been a snooker fan since 1979 when I 10. I discovered it on TV. My earliest recollection was Pop Black, then the BBC coverage of the Worlds in 1979 when Terry Griffiths won. So a few ramblings. Firstly, I was a decent club player and my highest break is 106. And I should say was, uh, I should say was, I'm now 53, and have not played for many years. I met a few professionals along the way. I once took a frame off Andrew Cairns in a prime in Preston back in the day. He was a pro for a few years and a good player. I was receiving 14 starts. I also beat Neil Figgins in a one frame off scratch. In one frame off scratch. But I'm not sure he ever won a match in a very short pro career. I was always capable of some very attractive forty or fifty breaks with Maverick pots, but all too often I would lose position due to lacking that bit extra skill to be able to keep the cue all in good position. My goodness it frustrated me. Digressing one moment, I have to say over the last few years getting hold of the excellent snooker scene magazine has been beyond me as no one seemed to stock it in my area. I still have around 100 back copies, and the detail in the match reports was continually outstanding. Your question about your favourite player? Well, mine is maybe a bit left field, but I'm going for Mark King. What a scrapper of a player. But when he won his first ranking title in Ireland, he showed a consistent high level of performance and was clinical in closing out the final with some real granite, as you would expect from him. He comes across as a good bloke who says it how it is, but it is true to himself. I like that in a person. You can't ignore that he's shown remarkable stability to be in the top 64 over so many years. I hope some punditry opportunities of some sort come his way in the future. I have a lot of stories from where I met certain players and can talk all day about snooker. Well, we, we may we may call on them. Oh, and he carries on actually here. Before I forget, I once went to the NEC. I think it was about 90 or 91, NEC in Birmingham. Well, that would have been the World Masters, uh, Simon. So 9, January 91. It's a massive snooker event where players of all ages played in various competitions and it was awesome. I remember standing next to this rake-thin ponytail lad as we watched some young prospect pot everything in sight. This young player must have been about 15. Maybe he ended up being one of the class of 92. I can't remember call the lad's name. The ponytail lad standing with me was none other than Peter Ebden, and he was as awestruck as I was watching this kid. It was like an Olympics of Q-sports, and with Jason Francis doing innovative events, perhaps we will see something similar in the future. I will close and leave you in peace in a moment. Last night I watched 73-year-old Dennis Taylor beat Maria Catalano in the nine hundred. As Rhian Evans pointed out, it was old-school snooker, as he potted a couple of balls, then retreated into the bulk area. She just didn't get a starter at all. The bird's-eye camera angle makes the table look longer and stretched, so it does look different, and the balls seem to be going in at a much faster pace. it would be interesting to see how fans take to it. Well, this is a digression. Thank you, Simon. Yes, the, the 900 that launched last week, It uh, as I said at the time, it was on quite late, so... You have to be, I guess, a bit of a night owl. But I did, I did watch uh, some of it, and I, I did enjoy it actually. Um, the format, I'm not quite sure I understand yet because it seems to, up <laughs> players seem to keep keep coming back. But listen, they've got amateur snooker on TV, and because it's a one frame format with a with a shot clock and and 15 minute matches, they don't actually stay so they're welcome. It, it is a bit like the shootout, in as much as if the frame's not particularly good, well, it'll be over soon, and then there'll be another one coming along. Dennis uh, did well to beat Billy Castle. He sort of twitched the, the first black, but then potted the second one. A bit of an upset, even in even in one frame. Uh, and James Morrison actually has written in on the nine hundred. We'll just we'll just digress onto this. He says surfing Twitter tonight, I came across the nine hundred via a tweet from Phil Haig, showing Dennis Taylor roll back the years and beat recent pro Billy Castle. I looked at the details of the tournament and was impressed by the idea. Essentially, another version of the shootout. Given the success of other sports with shorter formats, do you think this is worth the tour investing in two to three more events? Perhaps have decent prize money opportunities, but if you want to downgrade that in terms of tour value, you could only count half the value of the money they actually earn. Uh, would be good to have events like this on the Q Tour. For the record, I much prefer the longer format and agree with your sentiments, for example, about making the UK Championship matches longer in the final rounds. It just seems this type of format as a good place for developing the sport new markets could work well for international team events. Well, James, it's, uh, it's Jason Francis' format. He's the promoter, and um, he's putting this on for amateur snooker to give amateur players some in- encouragement to play for, to get on TV uh, for three nights. And uh, so I guess he's going be, to be looking, Jason, at the, the success of it, how it goes, and, and trying to, I'm sure, knowing him, he will already be looking at uh, trying to kind of take it forward in the future and, and, and really build it up to be something, something big. So... Uh, whether it would come on to the actual tour, I don't know, but for the amateur game, it's uh, it's a bit of a godsend, really. Liam McMullen. He says, I suppose it's time to tell all of Macedonia the strange and embarrassing reason I support Mark Allen. Ridiculous, but all true. <coughs> Here we go. When 14 or 15 years old, I severely broke my leg and was homeschooled for a few months and lived at my nan and grandad's for this period. They had a snooker tournament on whilst there and I fell in love with the game. Being completely new to the sport, I didn't really understand the nuances of play or technicalities of cue actions or styles, so really every player seemed the same. There also didn't seem to be anyone at the time, this is 2005-06, from around the Bristol area, which is where I was from. So it was a loss to choose who to follow. I was at a loss to choose who to follow. One day a very young Mark Allen popped on the screen, and when cueing and the camera angle would look back at the cue at his face, he would bring his chin out to the left, to a slight sideways point to meet his cue, creating an apostrophe shape with his head. Little me thought... This guy looks like a chicken dipper. I love it. I'll read that sentence again. Little me thought this guy looks like a chicken dipper. I love it. And I've supported Mark Allen ever since, which in fairness to teenage me has proven to be a great decision, as my girlfriend's dad is from Belfast and supports him too, and he's a wonderful player to watch. With the emergence of Judd Trump a few years later and being from my way, I also followed him early on, another fine choice that turned out to be. I think for me, I see it similarly to football, Support the local team. So now living in Stroud, I always cheer for Dominic Dale, Robert Wilkins, and Jack Lozowski also. Unless, of course, you look like an oven snack. <laughs> well, this is not what I expected when I asked the question last week, but uh, it, it, all, all uh, experiences are valid. Uh, Tom Milliard, in response to your play on the last episode, I just wanted to send an email that perhaps isn't too useful. <laughs> I don't have a specific favourite player, but simply enjoy watching all the players especially those who managed to pull off match-winning performances from difficult positions. Surely John Higgins is the best at this. As an aside, can you give any insight into what's happened to Kirk Mathlin? After such promise and that memorable run to at the Crucible, the quarter uh, the quarterfinals a couple of years ago, I think we're all surprised to see him drop off the pro tour, particularly or well, partly due to Covid travel difficulties, I believe. However, since then, I haven't seen his name in the queue tour or other prime events. It would be sad indeed if he's hung up his queue. Yes, I mean, he dropped off the tour. He wasn't playing, was he? He didn't play in a number of tournaments. He had a few personal issues, I believe. Um, great player, very talented player, but um, obviously missing all those tournaments, you know, was very costly. So I, I don't know specifically where where he is sort of right now, but um, I'm sure a lot of people would love to see him come back again. We have uh, Matt Owen. Further to your request for email correspondence, I wanted to let you know you are most certainly not in a room talking to yourself. <laughs> I'm listening and do so every week. Whether or not that justifies the continuation of a podcast, I couldn't say. Actually, I could. It doesn't. Regardless, I wanted to let you know that you aren't completely alone. And to say thank you for what I believe is these days called content. And excellent variety of content at that. Regarding the snooker call to arms of asking your listenership to name their favourite player, I'm afraid I'm going to have to be entirely obvious and pick Ronnie O'Sullivan. No one else comes close. Perhaps it's obvious to say, but when Ronnie is playing well... Uh, sorry... Uh, Perhaps it is obvious to say that when Ronnie is playing well, there's no one who can play the game with the same fluidity. He makes a notoriously difficult and pressurised game look ridiculously easy. It's fair to say that he transcends the sport and is one of the few sportsmen you can probably call an authentic genius. His gift for snooker is simply preternatural. At his best, he makes the sport look like an art form. The speed of his thinking, his break building and positional play are essentially unparalleled. Yes, all professionals can do it. But they haven't been able to do it quite so effortlessly, quite so beautifully, quite so quickly. He may not quite have the cue power of Judd Trump or the wild shots of Jimmy White, but no one times the ball quite like Ronnie. It's gratifying to see someone of his mercurial talents actually achieve their potential, so often with rare, once-in-a-generation or less people, their genius comes attached to other self-destructive elements, either from within or as a consequence of how they're regarded by the wider world. Famously, Ronnie is not without his own demons, But he's overcome them with discipline, intelligence and hard work to achieve what I'm certain he always felt he should, to become the greatest of all time. Not for him the tag of underachiever. His longevity, too, is something not really replicated in other sports. The drive, determination and self-educating he will have had to have undertaken to still be at the top of the game 30 years into his career is simply awe-inspiring. I'm looking forward to watching him this season with some of the pressure off him. I wonder if he'll be quite so intensely interested in winning. Uh, as a quick aside, following on from emails last week, although I'm no longer a huge fan of the BBC and do all my snooker watching in Eurosport, I'm thrilled that they still cover the game and that it reaches huge audiences. There is so much to admire in their coverage. I think we take it for granted that snooker will always be on TV. No sport has a divine right to TV coverage and there are plenty of niche sports that would love the exposure snooker receives and has done so for decades. I'm thrilled it's on TV as much as it is and feel very, fortun- very fortunate about it. And then Matt adds, my wife, not so much. (laughs) Well, you might have to try and convert her. But yes, I mean, you say that Ronnie. I mean, obviously, I expected people to mention him. I think the thing with him is he is a character who is prepared to experience pain to get the pleasure. And you see this with his running. He doesn't just go out for a jog. He pushes himself. He pushes his body. um, And I'm sure, you know, it it, kind of hurts. But the satisfaction of having done it at the end, is worth it. So it might be 90% pain for 10% satisfaction. And possibly that is true of his snooker. There's a lot of things he doesn't enjoy about the snooker tour and the, being a snooker professional. But he's put himself through this for three decades and counting for the moments like we saw at the Crucible. Um, obviously when he won. So, um, yeah, that's my, that's my view on that. Uh, now, Andrew Watts, says a long-time listener from the very start of the podcast almost, but first-time correspondent. Well, sad to hear you only got two emails last week, so I'm responding to your call-out for favourite snooker players. Being a half-centurion, age not break, my first memory of snooker was sitting up late with my dad one night, watching it on the box back in the late 70s. However, the first tournament I can remember watching was the 1981 World Championship. It must have been the Easter holidays, as my dad, who was a bank manager, called home to ask what the score in the snooker was. Steve Davis was playing, and I recall loving the fact that he won. But of course, my head and heart was won over by the dashing young fella in the grey suit with the earring, smashing in long pots for fun. Jimmy White is still my favourite player, and I was close to tears every time he lost the World Final. These days, of course, Ronnie is a brilliant player to watch, and in my opinion, the most entertaining player there is. Though I love watching Jack Lazowski, Luca Purcell, and after his stunning Masters win, I think Yang Tao is great too. Fantastic all-round game. Uh, I just wanted to say, it's great to see your request for a trophy to be named after Clive, and the recent announcement, the British Open trophy will be named after him, thoroughly deserved. Yes, well, indeed, that's Andrew in Edinburgh. And uh, we, will, we will conclude, this is the first half, remember, so we will conclude with Matthew Hoffman. So the rest of the emails will be read out next time. And this is a short uh, email. Matt, Matt, Matthew Hoffman is Flo- from Florida. He says, I know it sounds trite, but my favourite by far is Ronnie O'Sullivan. As an American following the sport across the pond, he's who originally got me interested in snooker. His talent and charisma are second to none, and even his B game... Is an interesting watch. I love the podcast. I'm happy we're keeping it going. Thank you, Matt. Well, here we are. You know, I mean, after last week's low, we've got so many emails that we're having to bring out a uh, uh, second edition, uh, which will be on Thursday. So do join us again on Thursday. In the meantime, it's still time to uh, to get in contact with your favourite players. SnookerScenePodcast at mail.com. That's snookerScenePodcast at mail.com. And we're proud members of the Sport Social Network. And, uh, well, uh, the British Open, of course, uh, very much uh, getting underway today, so uh, looking forward to, uh, should be a, a really good week, and of course the Clive Everton Trophy being presented to somebody at the end of it. Remember, it's a random draw event as well, so it, it does have a certain uh, interesting quality. We're not quite sure, you know, sometimes you look at the draw, you try and predict who's going to win, and the betting community do that, but you can't really do that with this one, because anyone could play anyone. That's... Uh, one of the great charms of the event. Anyway, hope everyone enjoys it. We'll be back on Thursday. For now, though, as we always say, goodbye-bye.
0: Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> 18- plus.